Welcome to The Strategic Investor. Join us as we interview some of the world's most productive asset managers and uncover sophisticated and unique investment strategies in the markets. Here is your host, Charlie Wright. Hello and welcome to Strategic Investor Radio on OC Talk Radio, where we bring you investment strategies you are not hearing elsewhere. That's especially true today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And we have on the line Burl East, CEO of American Assets Capital Advisors out of San Diego. Burl, welcome to Strategic Investor Radio. Well, Charlie, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So, Burl, uh, you've got a th- you're a 30-year veteran in the industry, so you're, you're a young guy like me, primarily in real estate. You've raised $15 billion-plus of capital, uh, mostly in equity, and 140-plus large-scale real estate transactions. You've been on the leadership council at USC's Lusk Center for Real Estate, and you've been on the board of directors of Excel Trust, which is a publicly traded REIT. And you prior uh, were on the board of associate board for NAREIT, the National Association of REITs. You've lectured at USC Marshall School of Business, Northwestern University, University of San Diego, University of Wisconsin. You've authored about 20,000 pages of widely distributed research. So our first question, uh, Burl, is uh, what do you have against spare time here? Well, Charlie, that sounded like a eulogy. My gosh. <laughs> Maybe when I do drop dead, someone will say all that stuff. I appreciate it. What do I have against spare time? Oh, I don't work very hard. Are you kidding me? I'm taking a nap right now. <laughs> well, that's great. Uh, that's great. Hope you stay awake uh, long enough to keep us awake here. So give us Not a brief sure. background of yours, will you? So um, what we do, uh, Charlie, is we run a real estate securities fund, and it's a mutual fund. So uh, investors can buy and sell it. Uh, the symbol is RAA. IX, RACS, we call it, which I think is a great name. And the real estate securities business, the you know the, the securities that we own in our mutual fund is a really, really huge business, way bigger than most um, casual investors might, might, might realize. There are 600 companies, and there's about $1.7 trillion of equity market cap and about $3 trillion of assets. And by our guesstimate, we think it employs 15% of the U.S. And so it's everything from home builders to REITs to Marriott and things like that. So it's a really large and diverse universe. And what we've been doing for about seven years now is carefully selecting from that universe the right stocks and putting them into this portfolio, this RACS portfolio, and producing you know returns for our investors. And so that's kind of the setup of what we do. Um, we think we do a reasonably good job. We were hedge fund of the year last year. And our, and our fund is also long short. So we have the ability to both buy stocks, which would be the long side, and then also to short stocks, which is a little bit unusual. There are some other companies that do long short, but not so many. So we're a bit of a sort of a, a more select set, uh, if you will. So that's kind of what we're up to. So you guys are involved, and you, you don't buy and sell real estate itself, but companies who are in the real estate industry. Is that it? Yeah, that's exactly correct, Charlie. Okay, and uh, most people don't short those kinds of companies. Do you do the shorting as opportunistic or as hedging? Hedging. You know, we, we describe our strategy. Let me, let me, I'll spend like two minutes on our strategy. So, as you mentioned, you didn't really say this, but, but you and I are both of a generation where we have, let's say, some experience. 
and I'm 58, and I've been doing this business. I've been in the real estate securities industry since 1982, so this is quite a long time, and I've been through three full cycles. And so we use a lot of sort of, I would describe, common sense in our stock selection, and what we're really looking for is monopolies, right? I want to have a building that's monopoly in a market where the monopolistic pricing comes through and the building stays occupied all the time and raises rents all the time. And that creates higher cash flows, higher dividends, and higher net asset values for the companies we own, and of course, then for our shareholders. So we're, we're focused on this monopolistic pricing model. Uh, the way we get there is to look at all of these 600 companies, by the way, in the industry. They fall into about 35 separate buckets. A bucket might be apartments, or it might be student housing or medical office buildings. It's sort of a sleeve of the industry where all the assets are the same. We think about these sleeves. And what we're looking for is a sleeve that has a limited number of suppliers. So, for instance, the example we always use is in the cell phone tower business. There are basically three owners of almost all the cell phone towers in the U.S. But in the apartment business, there are 4,000. In an industry with three owners versus 4,000, there is inherently less price competition, first thing. Second thing is we like barriers to entry. So now that we have a limited number of suppliers, we want a limited supply, right? We want it hard to build that thing, whatever that thing is. Let's say it's apartments. Charlie, you and I could be in the apartment development business in Texas in like 10 minutes, right? There's no barriers to entry. But in the cell phone tower business, you and I can't be in that business. We need 30,000 towers to be remotely relevant to AT&T or Verizon, and we don't have the technical expertise to do that. The third thing we're looking for is called barrier to exit for tenant. What I mean is the tenant can't physically leave. And what I'm not describing is they can't leave because they have a lease or something legal or something like that. I mean, like literally physically can't go. And again, the always the example we tend to use is the cell phone tower business is because let's say you and I are Crown Castle. Crown Castle is the largest owner of domestically of cell phone towers in the U.S. And let's say their biggest tenant is AT&T. And decides to leave one of Crown Castle's towers, the folks who happen to live in that market, like within a couple miles of that macro tower and happen to use AT&T as their carrier, well, their phone doesn't work. So the idea that AT&T can leave is, is not happening, right? So now we have limited number of suppliers, limitation on supply itself, and a tenant that can't leave. And then the last thing we look for is what we call secular demand drivers, underlying the tenant side of the business. So we want the tenant, in this case AT&T, to wake up in the morning and say to itself, oh my gosh, Charlie, our business is great and we're rolling out 5G. Guess what? We need more towers, right? As opposed to a business where maybe they're shrinking their footprint. These four characteristics, suppliers, supply, tenants that can't leave, and secular demand drivers, those four characteristics drive all of our portfolio decisions. And those portfolio decisions have led us to have a five-star rated mutual fund that was hedge fund of the year that has the highest alpha in the industry, all because of this simple process. Now, we describe all the stuff I've just been talking about for the last three minutes. We call that the car. Shorting, which is what your question was, and I'm sorry it took me so long to get to the answer, but shorting is the brakes. We use it to hedge, and you suggested that in your question. So we use it to reduce risk reduce volatility, and to drive the car safely through town, right? We have this car, and we want to get across town, and we don't want to get hit, and we don't want to hit anybody. So if we have brakes on the car, 
shorting, which ability, so we, we're hedging things like interest rates and, you know, bad companies and stuff like that. That reduces risk for our shareholders and provides, frankly, you know, a more comfortable ride in the car. So that's sort of how we think about shorting. Okay, well, we appreciate it. So let's go back to your long positions. And how about a couple of examples? You, you talked about uh, the cell phone towers. Okay. How about a couple of real-life examples? Uh, they don't necessarily have to have been home runs. Okay. But in uh, in the past, doesn't have to be recent past, just a couple of examples of what you did, why you did it, and kind of uh, how it worked out. Well, our, our strategy drives everything. So let me give you a couple of, of, of live examples. Our portfolio is right now 25% invested in data centers. And data centers where the cloud lives. It's where all the data lives. It's where everything in your iPhone lives. It's where all of your personal information lives, either you know, on a server in the cloud. And it gets back and forth to your devices over the cell phone now or network or over fiber. So for us, we think that the biggest single trend in real estate, the biggest money-making opportunity is investing in real estate that serves the Internet of Things. And we started this about five years ago, and a lot of it was just kind of common observation, looking at cell phone data packages and the fact that your refrigerator could not tell you you have milk and all this other stuff, thinking, well, where's all that data going? So it's going into data centers, so the demand for that is extremely large, and then getting it from there to your phone is the other side of this. So our portfolio is heavily invested in these areas. That's what we did. We decided kind of five or six years ago to deploy an outsized amount of the portfolio capital into those areas and to avoid other things. So if you think about the Internet of Things, one of the things it's doing is destroying traditional retail. You know, eBay and Amazon and things like that are moving sales from a physical location, like a store, to a logistics chain. Now, now you push a button and it shows up at your door. So there's a there's a shift, a sloshing around of water, let's say, in the system from traditional retail, which would be shopping centers. We don't own any of those, by the way, over to the digital real estate world, which would be fiber optics, cell tower communication systems, and data. So that was kind of a, a thought we had, of, like I said, about five or six years ago. It's played out really well. And we think, frankly, this goes on for another decade. We think that the underlying demand drivers for mobile data are growing at 20 to 25% a year for the foreseeable future. So this is the fastest growing business in our industry. And so we're buying real estate basically that just looks effectively like Google, if, if I could you know, maybe maybe put it in those terms. Now, that's not an individual stock. That's a sector, but one individual name? Uh, no, no, that's okay. We, we, we don't need particular names, but that, that that's what was what we were looking for there. So, so tell us, Burl, I mean, to, to be brutally honest, this is unique, uh, this unique strategy. Was this your brainchild, or was this a group of people uh, that came up with this? Uh, how did you guys well, come up with this? You know, yes, it was mine, but I don't want to make it sound fancier than it is. Um, you know, we have a math, we have a lot of analytics here at the company, um, Folks have strong modeling and uh, science backgrounds. All of us do. My associate here has got a uh, degree in architecture and an MBA. I was a physics major. We, we understand math. But what we mostly would think was sort of common sense. Like the example I use, I give a lot of speeches. You and I were in Denver together last week. And I give, shoes. I probably give, you know, five speeches a month. And at some point, 
I describe the strategy. And I usually say something like this. I say, well, you know, you know, I'll pick somebody in the audience. Like, let's say you're sitting in the audience and I ask you your name. I say, what's your name? And I point at you and you say, my name's Charlie. I said, Charlie, you know, here's how the strategy works. Is that my mom calls me, you know, Sunday afternoon and she says, oh, I'm over here playing bridge with Becky. And Becky wanted to know what you do. And I say, well, mom, tell Becky that we buy real estate companies that own real estate where the tenant can't leave. And we relentlessly, aggressively, and ruthlessly raise rent all the time. And she says, oh, honey, that sounds like a good idea. And that's what she tells Becky. Now, I'm obviously making this funnier and you know, making it kind of folksy. But all of the mathematics and modeling that we do support this simple concept. Whereas if you can't leave, you can't leave. I can charge you anything I want, and I will. So we are simply investing in asymmetrical outcome probabilities which are a function of restrictive tenant options. And that's a much fancier, like a CFA way of saying, hey, mom, we invest in these kinds of buildings. But it's the same idea. And while I would like to claim it's complicated, it isn't. It's just called pricing power. And if you were to read, oh, you know, let's say Warren Buffett's, you know, quarterly or annual reports, this is what he talks about. Now, he talks about it in a different way, but the same idea. He's buying companies where he believes that the product that they sell is uh, mission critical to whoever the buyer is, and that buyer will pay ever-increasing prices for that product because the product is not replaceable. It isn't fungible. And so he invests in companies that what he calls a moat, and our companies have moats. We don't describe it that way because it's a different business, but it's exactly the same economics idea. I have something you really, really want and need, and I'm going to charge you whatever I want for it, and you're just going to say, okay. And that's our strategy. And you're right, it is different. It's, it's shocking how simple it is, but when you look at the portfolios of other managers, other funds in our space, you will find they do not do this. What they do is a different process. They do what's called relative value analysis, which is they search for things that look to be cheap. And the reason they do that is because it is understandable it is easy to do with modern computers and technology and databases. You can just sit in front of a Bloomberg machine all day and run screens. And the things that pop out of the screens, you know, you might buy them because they look like they're cheap. Something used to be 11 times cash flow and is now nine, so therefore I'll buy it, that kind of idea. That, in our experience, now this is 100,000 hours of experience, and our experience takes you to a place where you own lower quality companies and lower quality assets, and we never do that. So what we don't do ever is spend time looking for stuff that's cheap. What almost all of our competitors do, though, is exactly that. They come into the office in the morning and say, what's cheap? And that's what they buy. They perceive that to be something that creates value for their investors. We don't think that's true at all. What we do is we buy the best possible assets we can, as again, as a result of this little strategy we have, now, once we decide what we want to buy, we try to buy that inexpensively or as inexpensively as possible. But we don't wake up one morning and go, you know, industrial space in Cleveland is really cheap. Let's go buy some. Because we don't want to own industrial space in Cleveland. What we want to own is data centers. Again, uh, th- so this our tra- is... Our strategy is very different than pretty much everybody in, in the business. Yeah, it is. It is. This is very, very interesting. We need to take a quick break here, break here Burl. And when we come back, let's talk about 
the misperceptions that either investors or advisors seem to have are the biggest hurdles you have to overcome in, in talking to them about the strategy and participating. Again, we're talking with Burl East, CEO of American Assets Capital Advisors out of San Diego. You're listening to Strategic Investor Radio, and we'll be right back. All right, time for the tip of the week. Charlie, what do you have? Paul, today we've got a tip of the week for advisors. We're talking with Troy Weingarner of Advisor Financing. They finance independent RIAs. So, Troy, uh, we've heard that there are a third of all advisors are over 60. And I heard recently at a conference that there are more CFPs over 70 than there are under 30. So this is a prime time over the coming few years for people to really start selling their practice. Typically in the past, the preferred method has been SBA. Is that still the case today? There is a tremendous demographic shift going on with retiring advisors. And yes, that has been the the typical choice of SBA lending. But frankly, SBA lending doesn't work well in the financial advisory industry. Uh, you can't do partial, partial buyouts. So a junior buying a senior. It's very limited. The terms are not advisor-friendly. Generally, higher rates. Generally, you have to secure it with your home or residence. The good news is, Charlie, we have conventional lending in the marketplace. We've been able to bring conventional lending with better terms, better rates to the marketplace. Okay, so for those who would like to know more here, Troy, where can they go? Sure. Our website is advisorfinancingllc.com. We have a lot of information and a program overview for our lending program. Okay, very good. Troy, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. All right, back to Charlie and his fascinating interview. Thank you, Paul. Again, we're talking with Burl Lee, CEO of American Assets Capital Advisors. He's speaking to us from the headquarters in San Diego. So, Burl, uh, let's get this straight. Uh, you mentioned that you were hedge fund of the year, and yet you have a 40-act mutual fund. So are you both? What is your structure here? The structure is a 40X, and so it has a daily NAV, and you can buy it at TD Ameritrade or Schwab or, you know, Ameriprise or any of those sort of normal shops, Fidelity. Uh, but at the same time, inside that structure, we're running it um, with shorting and leverage. So we're running it like a hedge fund. So the investor gets the benefit of our hedge fund experience, but they're buying it in a mutual fund wrapper, which makes it easy to digest and it doesn't generate K1s and it you know has daily NAV and it has you know normal shares like any other mutual fund. So our first question here after the break is when you talk to advisors or investors, do you guys work with both or just with advisors? Um, we work across a variety of uh, distribution channels. I would say that most of the investors that we have are very sophisticated. So they are extremely wealthy family offices, pension funds, foundations, insurance companies, and RIAs. We also have retail investors through platforms, for instance, Morgan Stanley and UBS and JP Morgan are on our platform, and so their investors own our funds. So we have a mixture, but it's probably 40% institutional, excuse me, 40% retail, 60% institutional. And to answer your question, I would say the biggest hurdle is just the idea of real estate. Before you even get to the idea of what we're doing, we find that most investors are woefully underinvested in real estate. Wall Street 
collectively, so call it you know the big the big brokerage and distribution firms have been pitching for like 25 years now the same model, which is 60/40. Now that model is a number that somebody just made up. It's not relevant or remotely accurate for any use, and yet it is a standard thing. You talk to an advisor at a big shop, one of the big, you know, four or five large uh, Wall Street firms, and inevitably that's what comes up. Amen. And you ask them, Amen. well, what percentage of real estate are you? And they, they maybe have a sleeve of like one or two or three percent. Now, if you look at the returns of real estate as an asset class, 40 years, 30 years, 20 years, 10 years, any time period, they beat every other asset class. And so when you say to the investor, why don't you do this? They typically don't have a good answer. If you go and talk to very sophisticated investors, let's say Yale or Princeton or Harvard, they are routinely 15 to 25% real estate all the time. And you ask them why. And they point to the same chart. And they say, well, Charlie, because real estate always wins. Real estate generates inflation-protected, long-duration income. And that wins. And it produces returns of 8 to 11% kind of year in, year out. And while there are times when 8 or 11 won't beat the stock market, over a five-year time frame, 8 to 11 always wins. And so we find that your average retail investor and your average advisor that's talking to them has missed this boat completely and doesn't understand it. And so we find that we end up selling them just the idea that they need to remove money from some other bucket, you know, like, like fixed income and put it into real estate, and that in some ways goes against the grain because they're the person that sold the investor this 60-40 idea, and then they'd have to go back and say, oh, by the way, I was wrong, and people hate to hear that. So we find that you're a little bit selling a product that even though it's the best product in the market, real estate, and if you look at the Ford 400, half of it is real estate wealth, the retail investor isn't getting the benefit of that because their advisors don't understand Excellent point. I, I certainly I certainly hear you. So what is your guys' biggest challenge at the present time? You know, well, we're always looking for new ideas. You know, so the number one job is, you know, review the portfolio. You know, as an airline airline pilot talks, fly the plane, right? So they teach you when your pilot is fly the plane. And what they mean by that is when things go wrong, you know, there's interest rate moves or something happens in the world that creates a news stream or white noise try not to pay attention to it and just fly the plane. So we're flying the plane, and then you're looking for new ideas, uh, always underwriting the ideas that we currently own, and then talking to investors about what, you know, about what real estate allocation should be and what it might do for their portfolio. And so the, the challenge really is, is an educational challenge. It's helping advisors communicate this message to their investors. And that's what keeps you on the road speaking five times a month? You know, I, I think I'm on the road speaking just because I like it. <laughs> I enjoy getting out. Um, I usually combine a trip to some place with an opportunity to meet one of our companies or to see real estate. So, you know, we, we go someplace where, you know, maybe talking to new investors like a big family office or a foundation or pension fund. But we're also there. If we're there, we're looking at stuff. We're looking at apartment construction in Denver or office construction in, in Houston or things of that nature to make sure that we're educated in all of these property types and all these markets so we can make good decisions. So a question we'd like to ask all of our guests here, Burl, is what book on investing would you recommend 
for our listeners? None of them. There's there's no book on investing that has ever made any sense to me. Uh, I'm a CFA, and I've got 100,000 hours of practical experience. And this is going to come across as, I don't want to be dismissive of the question, but for the most part, and I don't mean any offense to people that write books, mostly people that write books are not practitioners. Practitioners are too busy to write books. Practitioners are practicing. People that write books tend to be academics. And so if you think about this maybe in another vein, you have criminologists and you have cops, okay? Criminologists can describe to you why crime occurs. They could say, well, in Baltimore, here are the sources of crime. They could give you a slideshow and a pie chart. But if you actually have to solve a crime, you don't call a criminologist, you call a cop. Criminologists write books about crime. Academics write books about real estate investing or any other form of investing. And I've read many of these. Um, I've been quoted in many of them. Most of them, I would say, would be suitable for setting a cup on so it doesn't put a water stain on your, on your desk. But I wouldn't bother reading any academic's opinion on investing because for the most part, they're not actually involved in combat. They're just off you know, behind the front somewhere. I know this dismissive. You probably wanted me to come up with a book. And you could go read Moneyball because it's funny. But there's no book that actually is written by somebody that actually knows what they're doing. These are all written by academics. And no offense to academics, but they're criminologists, not cops. You know, Burl, we've got to hand it to you. You certainly do not lack for opinions here. Um, no. <laughs> That's the benefit of getting old, Charlie. <laughs> it is. It is. So the and second the question, like the we... answer is I would have looked up on my bookshelf, picked one of those names and just told you that. Yeah. But no, if, if, if investors want to be better informed, go read annual reports. Go visit companies. Go on the company's website, call the head of investor relations, download their slide deck, understand it. Look at all the competitors and then go visit the companies. That's the way to get knowledgeable. Reading what some academic says about some study about mid-cap, blah, 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 that's just a waste of time. Again, Burl, we, we appreciate your forthrightness and, and, and honesty here. Second question we like to ask all of our guests, what keeps you awake at night? I think the idea, like the, the, so the, embedded in that question is the idea that people can know the unknowable. Because the unknowable is what you're worried about. I mean, North Korea and South Korea go to war, uh, changes in tax law, changes in political point of view, so forth and so on, things that are largely unpredictable. We spend zero time worrying about things that are unpredictable because they're, in fact, unpredictable. So the things we focus on are things that are knowable. You have to divide. Investors do a really bad job of this, bucketing unknowable from knowable. And the reason they do this is because it's fun to talk about stuff that's unknowable. You can go to coffee with three guys, and you guys can endlessly debate what would happen if the wand fell, or if Hong Kong decoupled its currency, or if you know Mario Draghi got hit by a bus, or whatever it is, right? And you could have extrapolations and predictions and guesses about the outcome. And those are the kinds of things that keep people up. But those are all unknowable. It's like if I asked you, well, two years from now, in the 75th game that the New York Yankees play, who's going to strike out in the third inning? And you're going to say, gee, bro, I don't know. And it's the same answer. Anytime trying to invest, anytime investors attempt to predict the future, the, the, the smart answer is, I don't know. None of that stuff keeps us up because we don't care about any of it because we can't know it. What we do focus on is what we can know. So it's visiting companies, visiting assets, reading reports, and really understanding what we're doing. 
but the premise itself implies a worrying about stuff that is unknowable, and we don't bother with any of that. So again, I know that's a weird answer. You were looking for me to say something like rising interest rates, but because I don't know rates are rising or not rising, I don't spend one second thinking about it. Again, uh, n- 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 always surprised with your answers here, Burl. So it's uh, always a pleasure to ask you a question because we never know what we're going to hear. So provide information about how people can know more and tell us a little about briefly your relationship with Altegris in marketing and the administration here. Certainly. So Altegris is based here in San Diego, and they were a, they're were a sponsor of alternative assets things like private investment in hedge funds and managed futures and in real estate. And their real estate product, it, we manage. Okay, so Altegris is distributing it. American Assets Cap Advisors is managing it. We're the sole uh, sub-advisor, and I run the fund along with my partner, Creed, here. And Altegris sells the product, and it's available across every platform that folks could, you know, so if you have an account at you know, J.P. Morgan or Morgan Stanley or Schwab, this is available. And so if you simply type in RACS, R-A-A-I-X, the fund will come up. Or if you go into Morningstar, all of our data, and that's probably the place you should start because that has all the performance data and all the things that, that investors might want to look at. Um, so Altegris is sort of, we describe it, this is maybe not legally accurate, but they're the front end of the spear and we're the back end of the spear. Okay, and so that's altegris.com uh, to, to reach them directly, correct? Yes. So, uh, Burl, excellent, excellent advice today. You've got final words, 30 seconds. Well, I would say for most investors, Comet One, you're probably dramatically underweighted to real estate, and you should own a lot more of it, and the amount of it you should own is probably way more than you think. It should be 15 to 25%. Comment two is public real estate, REITs and real estate stocks, have historically done better than private real estate. Part of that is efficiency and the fees are less. And comment three is if you want something that's focused on monopolistic pricing, our fund would be a place to look. I'm not selling you that. You might have other options. But we think that that our strategy is, like I said, if I can explain it to my mom in one sentence, it seems like to me it makes common sense. Burl, great advice. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we hope that uh, things continue to go well for American Assets Capital Advisors, for RAAIX, and for you. And again, appreciate you being here with us today. Thank you, Charlie. Again, we've been talking with Burl E., CEO of American Assets Capital Advisors out of San Diego with their RAAIX real estate company, Long Short Fund. You've been listening to Strategic Investor Radio on OC Talk Radio. We'd love for you to contact us at info at strategicinvestorradio.com. Go to our website to hear podcasts of all of our interviews and shows, strategicinvestorradio.com. I'm Charlie Wright wishing you an enjoyable week and productive investing. Strategic Investor Radio is a production of OC Talk Radio and is provided for educational purposes only. Content of this program and the views of the guests should not be considered as recommendations by OC Talk Radio or investment advice from the host Charlie Wright or any other entity attached to this production. Investors should always consult qualified financial, investment, tax, or legal professionals prior to investing.